Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5 and focusing this morning on verse 2. Ezra chapter 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Let's pray. Our Father, please open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us hear the message that your spirit has for each one of us. Let us hear the message that your spirit has for this church. And God, I pray that you would guide my words so that they would not stray from your word because my words are unimportant. Your word is of utmost importance. Teach us. Draw us to you. Draw us to obedience to your word, because that is what pleases you. That is what removes that separation between us, because sin causes separation. What you have done in Christ, the work continues in us, and we thank you for it. It is in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, I... I own more than 20 commentaries I regularly consult on the book of Ezra, but this morning I'm just going to stand up and say I find I disagree with an assumption that they almost all seem to make. Uh, That assumption is implied in some, but is boldly stated by others. And it is the assumption that Ezra knew exactly where he wanted the events of chapter 10 to go. After all, the book's named after him. And so we assume that he was orchestrating it all. But I find in the back, in, underneath the words that Ezra was not the one orchestrating everything that happened. It was God Himself. And we see that. Some commentators assume that Ezra and Shechaniah had a plan to convince the Jews to repent. Some even go on to say that Ezra's prayer in chapter 9 was as much for the benefit of the crowd as it was an authentic prayer to God. That he and Shechaniah had come up with a plan to show the Jews the sin that they had been accepting. But I can say that nowhere in the thoughts of Ezra, because we do have his thoughts, do we ever see him hint at this plan. 
And even those commentators I deeply respect because not all 20 commentaries are ones I respect. I deeply, even the ones I deeply respect tend to think that Ezra had this end in mind all along. That he knew what the solution was for Israel. That he was maneuvering the people toward repentance and confession. And then finally separation from the idolaters of the land. But I think they give Ezra too much credit. I offer to you this morning, as we consider this second verse of this paragraph, an alternative understanding that I believe is more fully borne out by the text. I'm not offering it dogmatically. I offer it humbly. And I invite you to consider with me how it affects our understanding if we do not add assumptions to the text. If we take the text entirely as it is given to us. Because I do not believe Ezra had a plan. There's no indication he's leading to the action of dissolving these illicit relationships with the idolaters of the land. I think he is genuinely and completely overwhelmed by the weight of the people's sin, just as he prays in chapter 9. And those of you who have read the book straight through may have noticed that we have a point of view change at the beginning of chapter 10. From chapter 7, verse 27 to the end of chapter 9, we have the first person account from Ezra himself. He talks about, I did this and we did this. But beginning in chapter 10, we're back to a narrative where we see Ezra and the others in the story told from outside Ezra's head. Thus, the last words recorded for us by Ezra are at the end of his prayer in chapter 9, verse 15, where he says, Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. There's a hopelessness to this. There's a bankruptcy of options to bring the sinner back into God's favor. When we looked at this verse just two weeks ago, we look specifically at how God's justice is intimately tied with His grace and mercy, brought finally to completion and unified for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. But for Ezra, in his day, I suggest that he has no idea what to do at this point. And on that, I think we can take him at his word. And so he does the only thing he knows to do, cry out to God and beg for His mercy. As we saw last week, while he was weeping and confessing, the people around him, a great assembly, began to weep and confess as well. But then this week as we get to verse 2, we see Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, speaks. And we are told in the text specifically that he speaks to Ezra. He's not speaking to the people. He's not praying to God in this moment. He addressed Ezra. That's what the text says. He has a message for Ezra. And we will, God willing, spend the next few weeks looking at all the things he says, including the separating of these families for which he receives more than a little venom from commentators. 
But for this week, let's understand what he is saying to Ezra in the great priest's time of dismay. Because the whole beginning of this speech in verse 2 seems like a simple restatement of the main points of Ezra's prayer from chapter 9. We recognize what he's saying here. We see the points. His points are, we have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women. We have mixed with the peoples of the lands. He reinforces everything Ezra has said up to that point. But then he adds something to answer Ezra's hopelessness with the message, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. There is a way we can escape the earthly judgment of God. That's what he's telling Ezra. There is a way we can put this great sin behind us and begin to be the people of God again. This is the message of hope Ezra the priest needed to hear. And please look down to verse 4 because he finishes his solution, his offer with a command, an imperative meant just for Ezra. He tells him, arise, get up, for it is your task. He says, be strong and do it. It reminds us of Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Ezra, still lying on his face in prayer and confession, is commanded by this nobody to get up and do what needs to be done. I mean, we don't know Shechaniah at all. This is the only time he appears. There are five other men in Scripture with his name. None of them matches family description. This is his only moment. But that is enough. Because he accomplishes his task and calls the man of God back from hopelessness into useful service. It may be disturbing, but it is so true. Even leaders need a good kick in the pants sometimes. And God, the commander of all, will provide that in His time. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul tells that church who is being misled by those who said that they had missed the day of the Lord. He tells them, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. He says that's the role of the church, to encourage, to give courage to each other. And that is what Shechaniah is doing for Ezra as we see him today. We all stand at various times needing help to see our hope. There are times in everyone's life when we are buried under the concerns of this world and we need somebody to tell us, get up off the ground and do what God is calling you to do. I think this was Ezra's time of need for encouragement. But there's so much more to this preamble of Shechaniah's speech that we need to understand before we look at the specifics of his proposal in the coming weeks. 
And so this morning I would like to look at two of the three points I mentioned earlier. Those same points that appear to be a restatement of the points of Ezra's prayer. But it is the subtle differences that Shechaniah makes that help us understand God's purpose in this plan of separation that Shechaniah proposes. I will confess that this is the section I was the most concerned about when I began to teach through the book of Ezra. This is the elephant in the room, folks. This is where it gets real. Opinions on whether the Bible endorses or condemns this plan that Shechaniah puts forth are everywhere in the literature. But as I've indicated before, there's no biblical condemnation of the actions taken in chapter 10. And this morning, I would like to look at exactly why I think this is the case and how it applies directly to the church today. Because this is not something that is isolated anymore. The first thing we see from Shechaniah, the first place where he seems to be telling us the same thing Ezra has told us in the previous chapter is when he says we have broken faith with our God. This is a summary of the actions of the people with regard to God and His law. Recall that God's law is what informs us what, what, is, what it is that pleases Him and thus what is in rebellion to Him as well. The law, as we saw in the past, was quite clear. We read this a few weeks ago. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. That's from Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and following. And when we looked at this passage some weeks ago, I reminded you then that God's law had always allowed ethnic intermarriage. It had always allowed that. It was limited, however, to those who would worship Yahweh alone. We even see His covenant extended to slaves, to sojourners, to those who were outside of ethnic Israel, who were not directly descended from Jacob. When we see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 and following, you stand today, all of you before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God, and into His oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that He may establish you today as His people. That includes the alien. And that He may be your God, just as He spoke to you, and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are so many who would make this about race, and it is entirely not about race or ethnicity. It is about whether the people who marry His people are faithful to God. And His concern in that matter has not changed to this day. 
I plan, God willing, to look at the Scripture's teaching on that subject in a couple of weeks. So just stay tuned for that. When Shechaniah says, we have broken faith, the word he uses is as strong as the pictures that Ezra has been using. He is confessing the willing treachery of the people of God. And he probably had some first-hand understanding of that. Because if you look ahead to verse 26 in this same chapter of Ezra, someone from his family with the same name as his father, Jehiel, was guilty of marrying an idolater. He goes on to say that we have broken the faith with our God. Do you catch that? Our God. Look at the elements here. He has the confession of sin and we have broken faith. And he has the identification with God. He says, our God. Statements like this come easily only from those who are in a right relationship with God. Those who are still in their sin, who are still living in treachery to God, will find it quite difficult to speak of our God. They will speak of the God, or they will speak of God, but will not easily be able to own Him as theirs. I find it difficult to imagine this statement coming out of a rebellious person's mouth unless they were so hopelessly deceived that they thought that their sin was a virtue. We have broken faith. It's confessional. And the words, our God, is relational. What he is saying is that I am God's and I have not lived up to what he expects of me. This is the statement of a believer today. Someone who has placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their goodness, righteousness, and hope. Followers of Jesus Christ can in the same breath confess their sins and call out Abba, which means Daddy. You recall the great prayer that our Lord taught His disciples, our Father who art in heaven. And then He goes on to say, forgive us our trespasses. This cry comes from the roots of repentance and faith. Repentance because we have turned from our sin even though we have been guilty of it. And faith because we address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And as Peter warns us in 1 Peter 1.17, to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on the earth. And so we see from the very beginning, Shechaniah's confession is a confession from inside God's people. Not the confession of one who is outside. The second thing he says is that we have married foreign women. But there are two things to see in this phrase. Because he does not use the same words Ezra used in his prayer. 
There are two words here that are completely different and they change everything. We do that sometimes. Restating something in different words to try to help us gain a better understanding of the problem. It's one of the techniques that I use when I'm troubleshooting problems at my weekday job. I will listen to what the person says, the problem they're experiencing, and then I will paraphrase the words back to them to make sure I understand completely the situation. I don't repeat their words directly back to them because we might be misunderstanding some definitions. I paraphrase it so that we know exactly what we're talking about. And while it doesn't translate well, I think understanding this paraphrase will put us in an ideal position to understand the solution that is implemented in the remainder of this book. And I think that once you understand, you will agree it is exactly the right solution. Because there are two new words he uses in this paragraph that make all the difference. In this phrase, we married foreign women. The first I would like you to look at is the word foreign. If you look back through chapter 9 in Ezra's prayer, he never once used that word. And I would suggest if it had occurred to him, he wouldn't be as distraught as he was. And certainly, in support of my theory that Ezra had no part in contriving this, he didn't use the word. If he had, there might have been some reason to see some collusion between the two. But Shechaniah is delivering a message to Ezra because the word foreign has a very specific connotation almost everywhere it is used in the Old Testament. It is used to describe those who serve a different God. Every place. Every place in the law and almost every other place. We see it in the law in Deuteronomy 14.21. When God is giving this law about animals that die of natural causes... He says, you shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. What does foreigner mean in that context? They are not worshipers of God. You may sell it to them. It is also used in Proverbs. This word... It's translated there, adulterous. Proverbs 2.16, we are told to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. That word adulteress is the same word Shechaniah uses right here. And that may be why the King James translators translated foreign women as strange wives. I'm just going to leave that there. Proverbs 5.20 says, Why should you, my son, be exhilarated 
with an adulteress and embraced the bosom of a foreigner. It means exactly the same thing. And understanding this is critical to our understanding of what follows because in understanding the situation this way, from God's point of view, these idolaters were as legitimate to Israel as harlots. They were not legitimate wives. At best, they were concubines. And in the coming weeks, when we look at marriage and divorce in detail, we will come to the statement of Jesus from Mark chapter 10, verse 9. We'll deal with it. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But what we are seeing here, In this specific instance, in Ezra's time, there would be no violation of that law because God in no way would have joined His people with idolaters. What Shechaniah is telling Ezra is that God has not joined these together. He would not violate His own law. God has not joined them at all. And in a phrase that sounds more and more old-fashioned with every passing day, they were simply living in sin. Now the second word that we will look at only strengthens the argument. That word is married. We married foreign women. Except the word he uses doesn't mean married at all. It is not the same word that Ezra used in talking about intermarriage. It's not the same word that Deuteronomy used when it talked about intermarriage. What this word means simply means provide a dwelling for. And so in his summary... When he says we have married foreign wives, he, what he is literally saying is we have given roof to harlots. We have given roof to illegitimate. Marriage in our day, and I, 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 I was amazed. Ten years ago, I would say this was absolutely unique in history. I can't say that today. Because just because someone calls it a marriage doesn't make it a marriage. Just because there is love or commitment there doesn't make a marriage. Just because someone tells you it's a beautiful relationship doesn't make it a marriage. But what we see in the church today is that we see church after church that is buying the lie of the world that two people of the same sex can be married. God has not joined that. Together. And so this isolated situation in Ezra spills over into our day. 
Some denominations, sadly, have long ago abandoned the Word of God for the approval of the world and have joined the world in endorsing this very sin. But those who endorse this sin need to know that God is holy and not subject to error. He will judge every person according to His holy standard, not the sliding scale of cultural fashion or political correctness or agenda. This almost unknown man of God gives us a way to understand the situation of our day and we'll see his plan unfold in the weeks to come. But to the point today, in no uncertain terms, if two people are living as married and are of the same sex, they are not married. God has not joined them together. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, God would have them separate. It is not uncaring to tell a same-sex couple that in order to repent of their sin, they must stop their sin. Separate from their partner. Cling to God. And that is the exact remedy that God demands in Ezra for illegitimate marriage. I am astounded that ten years ago I could never have even thought this might be an issue in the church. Who in the world, who in the church would possibly believe that this would be an issue? And yet today it is the law of the land. In spite of the difficulties many face in coming to Christ. I pray that we will see repentance. We have to love Jesus more than anything to be worthy to follow Him. And for some of you, you look around and you see trials coming for you and your children. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the sin around us. You might be overwhelmed by the way the culture is going, by the way it's pushing you down. I know that social media is taking up the agenda, this worldly sinful agenda. And so I urge you to carry with you the final phrase from Shechaniah's preamble. Even now, there is hope in spite of this. Because our hope is not here in this world. Our hope is not in Washington, D.C. Our hope is not on Facebook or any other social media platform. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Our goal, our prize, our promise, and our glory forever. That is where our hope lies as believers in Christ. He is the only hope of those who are perishing And I urge you, if you're hearing me today, call on Christ for His righteousness and trust Him for your life. Because the time is short. And if you cling to your sin, you will sink in your sin. If you hold on to your sin, you will stand before God naked to His wrath. 
But if you will come to Christ and hear His call and follow Him, then you will be saved. He is our hope. And so don't, church, allow the world to make you despair. Be aware of what's going on. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. But don't despair. Because our hope lives. Our God reigns. Our Savior is risen. And we will be with Him forever. He's returning. The day of judgment approaches. It can be a day of terrible wrath, a day of fear, a day of terror, or it can be a day of joy, a wedding feast to last eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, We obey because it is what pleases You. Our obedience is born of love, not of threats. Certainly You tell us that sin has consequences. That aligning ourselves with the world has consequences. And still You call us back to Yourself. to turn our eyes from this world and its lusts to You who are pure and holy and righteous and innocent. God, we trust in You. Our hope is in You. Our faith is in You. Our life is in you. Let that draw us every single moment. Let your will let us filter the noise, the propaganda the spin to get to the real heart of the matter like this faithful Shechaniah did. Cutting through the rhetoric straight to the heart of the problem. Give us wisdom. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, our Lord, we pray. Amen.